Hey everyone, I'm Justin Kinney, and this is another episode of Nutshell Politics. This is episode two, and I'm really excited about the topic we have on tap today. What we're going to be talking about today is a current event, and this is where I kind of hope to do a lot of these future episodes focusing on what's going on in the world right now. I'll mix in a handful of theory episodes as well, where we talk political theory, but for the most part, I think touching on current events is going to be the bread and butter of what I want to do with this podcast. So today we're going to be talking about what's happening between the United States and North Korea. As many of you are familiar with, I'm sure, one of the biggest news stories recently has been the meeting between President Donald Trump and the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Recently, the two of them met in Singapore at this historic summit. It was the first time the leaders of United States and North Korea had ever met. Uh, it's actually the first time the two leaders had ever even spoken. We've never had a, a case since North Korea was founded back in the 40s that the United States president and the North Korean leader have ever spoken even by phone. Uh, so this was a really historic event. And today we're going to talk about some of the background of the North Korean nuclear program and kind of what's going on there today and what this meeting may mean, what they talked about, what was on the historic document that they signed, and kind of what the ramifications are moving forward. So before we get too far into this particular meeting between Trump and Kim Jong-un, I want to go back a little ways and talk about the, the timeline, where they've been with their nuclear program when it started, what their capabilities are, and that should help lead into why we're so interested in talking to them today. So the North Korean nuclear program really began in what's called phase one in the 1950s. So the country was founded in the 40s, but in 1956, there was a collaboration between North Korean scientists and engineers and the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union gave them the basic knowledge of how to start a nuclear program. And so this is where you start to see the program begin to develop. And in 1959, they actually signed an official nuclear cooperation agreement between North, it's North Korea and the Soviet Union. And they opened a nuclear research center a couple of years after that. Now, these early years, not a whole lot happened. You know, between that 50s and maybe the 80s, mostly this was just uranium mining. There wasn't a whole lot of research done. There was very little testing done. Uh, actually, no testing really at all. And it wasn't until the 80s that we started to see the program begin to take off. Now, in those first few years of the 80s, North Korea starts to build a factory to refine the uranium, refined yellow cake, and start to produce fuel for nuclear reactors. And we start to see the construction of laboratories for radiochemical testing, a nuclear reactor for producing plutonium, and a couple different other things that are going on as well, some research reactors. But this is all taking place in the 80s, and as we start to hit the end of the 80s, this is when the Soviet Union starts to fall. And the Cold War comes to a close, and uh, North Korea loses a lot of the security guarantee from that nuclear cooperation agreement that they signed. Also during this time period, you have the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And when I do an episode, when we get into more nuclear theory, we'll talk about that, that treaty and what it meant. But more or less, it was a legal agreement that states around the world, except for the, the original five, would not develop nuclear bombs. In 1985, North Korea signs this treaty. So despite their construction of these plants and 
being in the early stages of building some of these weaponry, they do sign a treaty saying they're not going to. However, they had not allowed any sort of inspection of their nuclear facilities to this point. So the United States begins to pursue a strategy, uh, an agreement with North Korea that would help bring North Korea into full compliance with the NPT treaty. But in exchange, we had to make some concessions, one of which was withdrawing our nuclear weapons that we had placed in South Korea. And so we did this. This happened in 1991. And in 1992, North Korea allowed a team from the IAEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency, to come in and inspect their facilities. Now, this agency team finds some problems, some discrepancies between what North Korea claims and what they actually have on the ground there. And so we start to suspect that North Korea is secretly utilizing its nuclear reactor to turn nuclear fuel for peaceful purposes into weapons-grade plutonium. And this is something a lot of people don't understand, is that nuclear energy can be used for a lot of peaceful things, and it doesn't take a whole lot to enrich that uranium or plutonium further to a point where it's weapons-grade and no longer peaceful. So when we're talking about, you know, say, denuclearizing the peninsula now, you know, that probably does not mean getting rid of peaceful nuclear usage which makes it very difficult because we have to find a way to allow them to peacefully use uranium and plutonium while not enriching it past a certain point. And that's, that's a really difficult thing to do, which is why you know, there's frequently inspections demanded of countries that, that utilize this peaceful technology. These inspections, as I said, did not go particularly well, and North Korea starts to block inspectors from visiting a handful of, of sites, particularly nuclear waste sites. And we start to suspect, and the international community starts to suspect, that North Korea is hiding something, uh, that they're not really revealing the full extent of what they're doing with their plutonium. So in 1993, because these talks didn't go well and these inspections didn't go well, North Korea threatens to leave the NPT. But after some negotiations uh, through Bill Clinton and Clinton himself did not speak to him. It was through a, an, an appointee. North Korea did back off of this withdrawal. However, there was still a lot of suspicion that what was going on was not what they were saying was going on. Now, in 1994, uh, the United States and North Korea signed what's called the Agreed Framework. And this is probably one of the most famous deals that we've signed with North Korea. And basically what it is, is we offered to give them fuel, oil, economic cooperation, we offered to help them construct some nuclear power plants that could be used for peaceful uh, for peaceful usage. And in exchange, North Korea would dismantle their you know, nuclear facilities and they would freeze any sort of plutonium production. Now, this framework was put into place over a long, long period of time. And there was some, there was actually a lot of debate about are we giving them too much time to do this and that sort of thing. But this deal was put into place, and this is 1994. Over the next couple of years, however, there's a few things that happen that start to cause some more concern that things aren't taking place as they should be according to this agreed framework. Uh, in 1996, North Korea had still not made their official declaration of how much plutonium they had, which was required as, a, as part of the framework. And two years later, in 1998, they actually launched a space vehicle in a 
for a satellite. Now, U.S. military analysts suspected that this satellite launch was actually a ruse, that they were testing something a lot worse, potentially an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile. Now, the missile flew over Japan, which was viewed as a threat in Japan by the Japanese government, and Japan retracted a lot of their aid that they had been giving to North Korea. So there's, there's a handful of things happening kind of in the late 90s as all as part of this agreed framework and whether or not they're following it. So if we fast forward to the 2000s, we start to see a few more things take place. And in 2002, the United States Assistant Secretary of State, a man named James Kelly, went to visit North Korea and, and have some more negotiations and talks. And he basically claims that he finds evidence of a secret uranium enriching program that would be contrary to the agreed framework. And a couple of weeks after this visit, the United States announces that North Korea admitted to having a clandestine nuclear weapons program. And over the rest of the year 2002, a whole host of things take place. George Bush, who's president at the time, threatening to cut off oil shipments to the North Koreans if they don't stop this nuclear weapons program. Uh, and all of this kind of ends with North Korea expelling the nuclear inspectors from the IAEA, from the country. And this happens in the late December of 2002. The next few years are very busy in North Korea with this. Uh, and so I'm going to skip a lot of it and just jump ahead to a couple of the important points. And in 2006 is when we see North Korea start to test fire missiles. And they announce plans to test a nuclear weapon in the future. And this indeed comes to pass in October of 2006, North Korea announces that it successfully conducted its first nuclear test. And this is where North Korea joins the, the company of the rest of the world, the, the nine countries that have nukes, and becoming a nuclear power. That 2006 test was followed by tests in 2009, 2013, a couple different ones in 2016, and then 2017 as well. And 2017 also marks the year in which they launch, they test launch, I should say, two ICBMs, which at least one of them had range that could reach the United States. So this is obviously very concerning, and this is what's driving a lot of the talks that are taking place today. Now, to understand North Korea, we have to go back and, and look at why do they even want nuclear weapons. There have been countries that have had nuclear weapons and given them up because they didn't want the responsibility. There were three post-Soviet states that had them on their borders when the Soviet Union fell, and they gave them up. Uh, I think Ukraine was one, Belarus, I think there was a third one too. And then you have a country like, say, South Africa, which actually developed nuclear weapons and then later recanted and gave them up and said, we don't want them anymore, it's too much. And so they willingly gave them up. And th there's, a, there's a good reason why there's only nine countries in the world that possess them. You need a certain level of material capabilities, you need a certain level of resolve, of ability to protect them. And so there's some question as to why North Korea wants them. And the reason it gets down to a theory called nuclear deterrence theory. And I, I plan to do a whole episode where we talk about deterrence theory, but the basic idea here is that nuclear weapons are great deterrent weapons. They're, they're used more for defense than, than for offense. And if you look at this from North Korea's perspective, two of their main allies, be China and Russia, have nuclear weapons. Their largest 
threat in the world is probably the United States, and we own nuclear weapons. We have stationed nuclear weapons in South Korea right on their border, and so they, they see the, th- the threat of invasion or someone coming in to oust Kim Jong-un now, uh, Kim Jong-il before, and so they, they see nuclear weapons as their best way to prevent that. Because at the end of the day, they know if someone tries to invade North Korea, no country wants to risk North Korea launching a nuke back back at them. So if we can't get to their nuclear weapon and destroy it in some sort of a first strike, North Korea is protected because we're not going to risk that. And, and so even though North Korea once signed the NPT Treaty, they have since backed out. They backed out in 2003 officially, although I should mention they never came into full compliance even after signing it in 1985. But they see these nuclear weapons that they possess as deterrent factors. Uh, they they see threats on the horizon from countries that may want to oust Kim Jong-un, now again nowadays, and so that they use nuclear weapons as deterrents. But because of this, the United States and other countries have viewed North Korea as kind of an outsider. They are a rogue nation that has signed a treaty, backed out, and developed nukes kind of on their own. And we're, I would say, rightly concerned about that. And so denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula has been a a big issue for, for years, really. And so that underscores a lot of why Trump met with Kim Jong-un recently. Now, of course, the question is whether or not North Korea would ever truly agree to disarmament into denuclearization. Because even though Trump recently tried to reassure Americans that we can, quote, sleep well because the nuclear threat from Pyongyang is over, you know, this is a, a real concern. Because what's the incentive for North Korea to give up these nuclear weapons? They believe they are the only thing preventing invasion or preventing you know, the ousting of their of their leader. So I think there are some real questions that need to be asked about these deals that President Trump and Kim Jong-un are talking about, because the question of what does denuclearization mean is going to be an important one. You know, does this mean that he might be willing to give up the weapons he already has, that he's willing to stop testing new ones, uh, that he will get rid of all of his nuclear energy entirely? I I think these are, are questions that have yet to be answered, at least publicly. You know, this idea of complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula is a term that nobody really has agreed on a definition for. You know, there's no timetable on giving up bombs. There's no timetable on giving up certain types of missiles that have long ranges. Uh, And so there's a lot of details here that would need to be hammered out. And I think there is some real incentive for North Korea to not give in to this idea of complete denuclearization, at least in the concept of what most people tend to think of what that means. Because while this sounds promising, and I'll freely admit it totally does, you know, it's obviously good to have these lines of communication open, North Korea has promised to denuclearize in the past. Many times, actually. This is not the first time they've promised to abandon any sort of nuclear efforts. Uh, and actually, this is not even the second time or the third time. You know, this offer of denuclearization has been put up by the North Koreans a good eight, nine times in the past, and it's never come to fruition. And so this is something that we need to be very skeptical of because, you know, as, as an analyst, it's really hard to believe that after all these times of promising it and offering it up as a concession in the past, that this is the time that it's finally going to happen. 
this is a very messy issue. And because of that, we, we've seen different promises in the past. I mean, obviously, the agreed framework, I think, is the most famous one. But the Treaty on Non-Proliferation Nuclear Weapons was something they have signed and backed out of. There was a joint declaration uh, in, signed in 1992. There were the six-party talks in 05 and in 07. There was another agreement in 2012. So while people are talking about this as being some unprecedented event, you know, this is an area that North Korea has trod before. You know, they've gotten this far before. There's, there's no new ground here. Obviously, the discussions directly between the two leaders is new. And I'm hoping that is promising for something down the road. But, you know, this is not new ground in terms of what the concessions are. And there are a lot of parallels between this current statement that North Korea has made, you know, offering denuclearization and previous ones. And so there's a lot of questions still to come out about, you know, when North Korea will denuclearize, how they're going to do it, will they do it in a way that the rest of the world can verify it? That's been a point of contention as to whether or not people can go in and inspect what's going on there to know that they're actually following the agreement. But what we do know so far is that Kim Jong-un has announced an indefinite, shall we say, pause to their nuclear and ballistic weapons programs or their ballistic missile programs. And they've also announced that they're going to shut down a nuclear test site. Now, it is important to understand potentially why this is happening. This It's a little unclear as to whether or not this is a political move that's just done in preparation for these talks with Trump and the United States and South Korea going forward. You know, if it's some sort of minor concession or if it's actually going to stick. But we do know that the mountain that is traditionally used by North Korea for their nuclear bomb testing has actually undergone a collapse. Now, it's been known for a while that so much testing in the same area had weakened the mountain and they were worried about a collapse. But it, it's now believed that uh, through a, a recent study that was done that that mountain has essentially self-destructed, which has probably played a pretty big role in why Kim Jong-un was so ready to, to close the test site because he had to kind of do it anyway, right? So this mountain is, is something called Mount Mantap. Montop, and it's the it's the site of five of their recent nuclear tests. Uh, it's kind of up in the northwest corner of North Korea, and it's believed that the nuclear test essentially ripped a hole in in the side of the mountain by essentially vaporizing any of the surrounding rock. So this actually caused an earthquake too. Um, actually, I believe a couple earthquakes, including one that was a six point three, which is fairly high. And so this evidence that the mountain of the test site collapsed could be one of the underlying causes for North Korea halting its tests. Which means that while it's nice that they're halting the tests, this is not really a concession per se, but it's being used uh, because it's an opportunity for them. They had to kind of close it anyway, and now they can spin it as as a concession rather than what it is, which is a mountain collapse that's forcing them to close down. But before we get into what they talked about at the actual meeting itself, why don't we take a step back and talk about what weapons North Korea actually has. The latest estimates are that North Korea has anywhere from 10 to 20 nuclear weapons right now, with the best estimates probably being somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 or 16. And if we assume that North Korea continues to test their weapons on a fairly consistent basis, improving their skills, getting assistance from outside forces, uh, possibly Iran, for instance, then they might have as high as 50 nuclear weapons or more. It's 5-0 in the next couple years. And this is really important to North Korea because it increases their ability to avoid a first-strike disarmament. 
A first strike disarmament is a, an idea in political science and warfare that if an enemy country strikes first, then they have the ability to disable their enemy's greatest weapon. In this case, a nuclear weapon. So the more weapons a country has, the more difficult a first strike would be, especially if those weapons are spread out across the country. So the more weapons you have, the more deterrent factor you have, and it keeps your enemies at bay because there is now a greater chance of retaliation. Now, of course, you need more than just a nuclear weapon for this to work. Uh, you also need some way to deliver the nuclear weapon, some sort of delivery system. And this is where the North Koreans in the past have struggled. But one of the reasons these meetings between Trump and Kim Jong-un and the South Korean President Moon have been such a big priority of late is because in 2017, North Korea successfully tested their first ICBM. This is a missile that could potentially reach the continental United States. So their delivery systems have been improving over the years. Now, they obviously tested one device, and that does not necessarily mean that they have enough of these delivery systems to do much with them, or even that it's capable of holding a warhead or being accurate. But the improvement in the delivery systems that they've had there is still pretty striking. And in fact, under Kim Jong-un in particular, the North Korean program has really taken off. Uh, obviously, I mentioned that the nuclear program there goes back all the way to the 1950s during the Korean War under their original leader, Kim, uh, Kim Il-sung. But they didn't test their first nuclear weapon until 2006. And we know they've been working on it for a long time. The IAEA, as I mentioned earlier, has been aware of it and interested in North Korea from a nu nuclear perspective since 1992. But it's really under the end years of Kim Jong-il and the recent years of Kim Jong-un that they've really taken off with both nuclear weapon capabilities, nuclear weapon strength, and delivery systems. This most recent testing of an ICBM hit an altitude above the International Space Station and flew about a thousand kilometers. Once you kind of factor in a flatter trajectory, the possible range on this thing could be in the neighborhood of about 8,000 kilometers, which could reach almost anywhere on the US mainland. The other idea I just touched on was power the size and strength of a nuclear weapon, because that matters. And we've seen North Korea's nuclear capabilities grow in power with each successive test. In 2006, their original test was a yield of about two kilotons. But by 2016, that yield had risen to about 35 kilotons. And actually their most recent test, which was in 2017, nuclear experts have actually estimated the yield on that weapon was closer to 100 kilotons much, much higher, significantly higher than what North Korea had been able to do up to that point. Uh, just for comparison's sake, the bomb that the United States dropped on Hiroshima had a yield of about 16 kilotons. So the current Nor North Korean capabilities far surpass what even was dropped in Hiroshima. Now, this 100 kiloton bomb that was dropped in 2017, or I should say tested in 2017, lends credence to a North Korean claim that they have what's called a hydrogen bomb. Now, a hydrogen bomb is a type of thermonuclear bomb that's called a second-generation nuclear weapon design. And essentially, the idea here is there's two components. You have a primary fission bomb that compresses the fuel material at the other end of the bomb and triggers a secondary fusion reaction. And it's referred to as a hydrogen bomb or an H-bomb because it uses isotopes of hydrogen in the reaction. And thermonuclear weapons, the idea here is that it's the most efficient design for high-energy yields with yields above 50 kilotons for the most part. So if North Korea has managed to move past the first generation type and into the second generation, it also kind of speaks to their strength and capabilities. 
And we've seen Kim Jong-un in particular really push hard for these advances in nuclear technology. In addition to the four nuclear tests under Kim Jong-un, of which there were only two before him, his country has carried out more than 80 ballistic missile tests. And this far exceeds anything his father and grandfather did. So the question now becomes, you know, what happened during this meeting with Trump and what's going to happen going forward? As for the official meeting with Donald Trump, he and Kim Jong-un signed a document that highlighted four specific points. First was the reestablishment of U.S.-North Korea relations for peace and prosperity, that sort of thing. Second is they wanted to work together to build a stable peace regime across the whole Korean peninsula. Third is the idea of working towards, quote, the complete denuclearization of the Korean peninsula, which, as I mentioned earlier, we don't really have a solid definition for what that means. And then fourth is this commitment to recovering POWs and MIA remains, which means soldiers who died as far back as the Korean War will have their remains returned to the United States. So that's the four-point document that Trump and Kim Jong-un signed. And uh, actually, this has even gone further, too, because... Kim Jong-un has apparently accepted Trump's invitation to visit Washington, D.C. one day, and Trump has been invited to visit Pyongyang in North Korea as well. So there is some sort of a precedent set here for a continued relationship moving forward. Again, though, there should be a lot of skepticism here as for how long this will last and what this really means, because nothing to this point has been very solid. At the moment, we're still talking in vague terms. There's no real timetable for giving up nuclear bombs or missiles or ending the program. Very little concrete or tangible things have been done. Now, I, at this point, I should mention the return of the prisoners. The American citizens who were being detained in North Korea, uh, they have been released. Trump managed to secure that. And no matter what else happens in this relationship, I think we can count that as a win for the United States. No matter what you think about Trump or his administration, the recovery of those prisoners is a really good thing. And even if the rest of the relationship just kind of reverts back to status quo, these tensions between the two countries, I think we can count that prisoner release as a win. But this means that there's some really big questions moving forward. And I think the main one here is, is North Korea serious right now? There's a lot of question about this. As I mentioned, the agreement is very vague. There's no specifics about what North Korea has promised to do. And in fact, North Korea has promised this before and it hasn't happened. So at least for the moment, you can count me as being very skeptical about this. There's a good chance here that North Korea is simply putting on a show to buy time or to distract. Or he might just be looking for some sort of political win to make himself look good, buy some goodwill on the global stage. Kim Jong-un knows that pressure has been mounting against him for a while now. So he may be concerned that someone was going to step in and try to stop him. So there is a real chance here that all of these agreements and talks are merely about buying time. In addition to that, there is this element of legitimization, right? A lot of people on the world stage do not view Kim Jong-un as a legitimate leader due to his cruel dictator-like behavior. Actually, if you haven't read the 2014 report about some of the practices that are taking place behind the scenes in North Korea, you really should. It's very eye-opening, incredibly heartbreaking just to hear about what's going on there. I certainly hope and pray that Kim Jong-un is is not just playing for time here. I hope that he's serious about these claims about wanting to denuclearize for peace. But if I'm being totally honest, I don't think we have enough evidence to know for sure that that's going to happen. I certainly hope that President Trump and Pompeo and Bolton and some of the others who are working with the president and his administration have studied these past agreements and that we don't make the same mistakes going forward. But at the end of the day, we have to understand that this peace process is not a sprint. 
All right, it's not the 100-yard dash. It's more like a marathon. And we've completed maybe one mile of that 26.2. So there's a long way to go. Now, admittedly, that first mile has been good. The release of those prisoners, the promise of talks going forward, these are all good things. The idea of having an open line of communication is a good thing, even though it may result in some legitimization of the regime. But I do think Donald Trump needs to be a lot more careful here with some of the rhetoric that he chooses to use. Referring to Kim Jong-un as a tough leader, strong, a great negotiator, these are problematic when referencing a brutal dictator like this. Obviously, Donald Trump campaigned on a whole platform of him not being a politician, and that's what his supporters like most about him, and that's all well and fine. But there are certain elements of diplomacy that really do come into play and are important here. There's something like 25 million people enslaved in North Korean concentration camps right now, with no basic human rights, no food, no electricity. And no matter the outcome of these particular talks, I think we have to keep that end goal in mind, that there are people there who are suffering greatly under this regime. And while the nuclear process in these talks is encouraging, and I think they could potentially lead to some great things down the road, there's a long, long way to go in this relationship with North Korea and the dictatorship that's taking place there. I really hope this is the start of something that could be great, but you're going to have to color me a skeptic until we see something a little bit more concrete. Unfortunately, the chance that North Korea is just using this to distract or for legitimization purposes domestically, justification for their murderous regime is simply too high at this point. And they really haven't banked a whole lot of goodwill in the past. You know, This would be a very different case if the country had you know, adhered to treaties and agreements, but they haven't. So there's no good reason to trust that they will this time until we start to see some more of these dominoes fall. I think that release of the prisoners could be that first domino, and I really hope it does lead to more dominoes in the future, but I really want to see them before I'm willing to believe it. So in the meantime, I think it's really important that we keep the people of North Korea in our thoughts and prayers, and the same for these talks between Trump and Kim Jong-un, because hopefully it can lead to something greater this time than it has in the past. I do think that Kim Jong-un has been a little chattier of late, and that may bode well going forward. He's started to reach out beyond his borders more than he's ever done before. He's visited China, visited South Korea, now in Singapore to talk to Trump. He's attended Western-style concerts in North Korea. Uh, he's even spoken with Dennis Rodman, who, as crazy as that sounds, has become a fairly important ambassador in this relationship. But until those kind of vague promises of disarmament turn into something tangible, I think it's really best if we both from a government perspective, but also as the people perspective, if we go into these talks cautiously, eyes wide open, understanding the history of this relationship and the history of these type of promises. That said, once we find out more details about this, I will cover it here on Nutshell Politics. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and end this episode. We're about out of time. So I appreciate you guys listening. If you're interested in supporting me or this podcast, follow me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, hit me up there, and I'd love to talk to you about it further. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this is Justin Kinney, Nutshell Politics, and I'm signing off. Yeah.